Hello and welcome to JG Ministries Bible Study, where we study God's Word. As always, I'm Jeffrey, Minister and Chaplain at JG Ministries, and I'm glad you joined us. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to chapter 17, verse 1 of the book of Luke. Today we will begin a new chapter. Last time we finished chapter 16 with our discussion on the rich man and Lazarus. So now we begin a new chapter with the Son of Man instructing his disciples. And as this heading indicates, this unit contains various brief teachings that Luke brings together. And the common unifying theme is attitudes in the Christian community. So turn with me to verse 1 of chapter 17, and let's go ahead and begin reading. Then he said to the disciples, It is impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they do come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he should offend any one of these little ones. Take heed to yourselves if your brother sins against you. Rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you, saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. Now let's stop there for a moment. Let's take a look at verses 1 and 2. We have concerning the peril of offending, and we have sin, we have faith, and we have duty. Now, Jesus has been addressing the Pharisees since chapter 16, verse 14, and now he resumes his conversation with the disciples, warning them about things that cause people to sin. Woe recalls chapter 6, verses 24 through 26, and remember when you see the word woe, it is another way of indicating that what comes after is a warning. Woe means warning. The the continuity or flow of thought in this chapter is obscure. It almost seems as if Luke pieces together several disconnected subjects. However, Christ's opening remarks on the peril of offending may be linked with the story of the rich man at the close of chapter 16. To live in luxury, complacency, and ease could very well prove to be a stumbling block to others who are young in their faith, especially if a man has the reputation of being a Christian. His example will be followed by others. How serious it is to thus lead promising followers of Christ into lives of materialism and the worship of of mammon. Of course, the principle applies in a very general way, and little ones can be stumbled by being encouraged in worldliness. They can be stumbled by being involved in sexual sin. They can be stumbled by any teaching that waters down the plain meaning of the scriptures. Anything that leads them away from a pathway of simple faith, of devotedness, and of holiness, is a stumbling block. Knowing human nature and conditions in the world, the Lord said that it was inevitable that offenses should come. 
But this does not diminish the guilt of those who cause the offenses. It would be better for such that a millstone were hung around their neck and they were drowned in the depths of the sea. It seems clear that language as strong as this is intended to picture not only physical death, but eternal condemnation as well. When the Lord Jesus speaks of offending one of these little ones, he probably included more than just children. The reference also seems to be disciples who are young in their faith. Now, a millstone was a stone of sufficient weight. It was used to crush grain as it was being rotated in a mill. And in the Christian life here in verses 3 and 4, we have a concerning need for a forgiving spirit. So in the Christian life, there is not only peril of offending others, there's also the danger of harboring grudges of refusing to forgive when offending person apologizes. And that is what the Lord deals with here. The New Testament teaches the following procedure in connection with the subject. Number one, if a Christian is wronged by another Christian, he should first of all forgive the offender in his heart. This keeps his own soul free from resentment and malice. Secondly, then he should go to the offender privately and rebuke him. If he repents, then he should be told that he is forgiven. If he sins repeatedly, then says that he repents, he should still be forgiven. Thirdly, if a private rebuke does not prove effective, then the person who has been wronged should take one or two witnesses. If he will not listen to these, then the matter should be taken before the church, and failure to hear the church should result in excommunication. The purpose of rebukes and other disciplinary action is not to get even or to humiliate the offender, but to restore him to fellowship with the Lord and with his brothers. All rebukes should be delivered in a spirit of love. We have no way of judging whether an offender's repentance is genuine. We must accept his own word that he has repented. And that's why Jesus says, and if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. This is the gracious way our Father treats us. No matter how often we fail him, we still have the assurance that if we confess of our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The little ones would seem to be either young or new believers or people whom the world takes little notice of. Since there is no antecedent for these, it seems best to take it as referring to people who were actually standing there with Jesus. Both units of verse 3, uh, 3b actually, the second sentence in verse 3, must be given equal weight. Rebuke of the sinner and forgiveness of the penitent are equally Christian duties. 
Now, verse 4 does not, of course, establish a specific number of times for forgiveness, but rather shows the principle of being generous in forgiving others. This is the only right response for those who have themselves been forgiven. Now, turn back with me to our scriptures, to verse 5 in our Bibles. We're going to start the section of faith and duty. And verse 5 says, And the apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. So the Lord said, If you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, Be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. And which of you, having a servant plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and sit down to eat? But will he not rather say to him, Prepare something for my supper, and gird yourself, and serve me till I have eaten and drunk, and afterward you will eat and drink. Does he think that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise you, when you have done all these things which you are commanded, say, We are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. Let's stop there for a moment. Take a look at verses 5 and 6. The thought of forgiving seven times in a single day presented a difficulty, if not an impossibility to the apostles. They felt they were not sufficient for such a display of grace, and so they asked the Lord to increase their faith. Now, the reply of the Lord indicated that it was not so much a matter of the quantity of faith, but of its quality of faith. And also, it was not a question of getting more faith, but of using the faith that they had. It is our own pride and self-importance that prevent us from forgiving our brothers. That pride needs to be rooted up and cast out. If faith the size of a mustard seed can root up a mulberry tree and plant it in the sea, it can more easily give us victory over the hardness and unbrokenness which keep us from forgiving a brother indefinitely. The apostles may have felt that this kind of forgiveness would demand more faith than they had. The black mulberry tree grew quite large and even to a height of some 35 feet and would be difficult to uproot. Now the mustard seed is proverbially small, it's a suitable metaphor for the amount of faith needed to do the seemingly impossible. Jesus' answer to the request for additional faith seems to be that they should use the faith they had to petition God. And now with verses 7 through 10 concerning profitable servants, Luke here presents Jesus' teaching about the ideal of servanthood. The world's idea of success is to lord it over others. Jesus's was the reverse, namely servanthood, which is actually the way to true greatness. The circumstances that Jesus described here were normal in that society, and the point is obvious, where Jesus highlights God's grace by a reversal of this normal procedure. Now, through this parable, Jesus emphasizes the proper servant attitude. 
He does not intend to demean servants, but to make their duty clear. The true bond slave of Christ has no reason for pride. Self-importance must be plucked out by the roots, and in its place there must be a true sense of unworthiness. This is the lesson we find in the story of the bond slave. This servant has been plowing or tending sheep all day. When he's come in from the field at the end of the day of hard work, the master does not tell him to sit down for supper. Rather, he orders him to put on his apron and to serve supper. And only after that is done is the slave allowed to eat his own meal. The master does not thank him for doing these things. It's expected of a slave. After all, a slave belongs to his master, and his primary duty is to obey. So disciples are bond slaves of Christ. They belong to him, spirit, soul, and body. In the light of Calvary, nothing they can ever do for the Savior is sufficient to recompense him for what he has done. So after the disciples has done everything that he has been commanded in the New Testament, he must still admit that he is unprofitable. He's an unprofitable servant who has only done what was his duty to do. And there are five marks of the bond servant that I want to leave us with. The first one is he must be willing to have one thing on top of another put upon him without any consideration being given him. Secondly, in doing this, he must be willing not to be thanked for. Thirdly, having done all this, he must not charge the master with selfishness. Fourth, he must confess that he is an unprofitable servant. And lastly, and fifth, he must admit that doing and bearing what he has in the way of meekness and humility, he's not done one stitch more than it was his duty to do. And finally, to leave us here for the day, forgiveness. Jesus seems to imply here that unwillingness to forgive is the cause of many losing their souls. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 to 35, Peter asked Jesus, how often must we forgive? Jesus answered 77 times, meaning times without number. Then the disciples cried out, Lord, increase our faith. If we have to be that forgiving, we cannot do it without more faith. Then to help their faith, Jesus speaks of the unlimited power of faith. And by the parable of the obedient servant, he shows them that humility is the foundation of faith. As we seek the Lord, our desire to serve him and do his will, will provide us with the power and faith we need to thrive as we serve others in his name. And with that, we are out of time. Thank you for joining us. And until next time, God bless you and keep living Christian strong.